Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Raya Shapiro, a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Raya, would you mind giving a short introduction to your biography and your research interests as they stand now? All right, perfect. Um, I am a third year PhD student in the Department of Polish, Russian, and Lithuanian Studies, which I think I feel obligated to plug is the only Slavic department in the United States that puts Polish before Russian. And this is very important to us. We want to upset Russian hegemony in Slavic studies. Um, we also have a very strong Jewish studies emphasis um, and a program that does comparative Yiddish and Slavic language modernisms, which is what I'm starting to become involved with, which is why I'm now learning Yiddish. Um, that happened because I pretty much fell in love with S. Ansky, who I'm going to be talking about today. So S. Ansky, mm -hmm. would you mind giving us a short biographical intro? Yes. So he was born in the 1860s in what is now Belarus. Um, his birth name was Shloyma Zanvil Rappaport. Um, he, Esonsky, was one of a number of pseudonyms that he used, but he sort of settled on this while he was in St. Petersburg um, working with Gabuspiansky, who was this famous Russian populist, and also while he was working in Donbass in a mine because he had initially gone to teach Russian to some young yeshiva students in various shtetls and then gotten run out of those shtetls by the parents for um, giving his students clandestine um, muskelik, that's uh, the Jewish enlightenment, basically okay. anti-religious literature and trying to radicalize them because he fancied himself a young revolutionary. Um, yeah, so he was a populist. Mm -hmm. He was kind of a, he did not perfectly fit into the left political sphere at the time. What were his politics? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> his politics were kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a reason that he was very controversial. Um, so he initially did work very strongly with Russian populists and he kind of disavowed his whole Jewish background. And then around 19... One, he stages this sort of coming home and, and frames himself as kind of a prodigal son, but then he doesn't. You're supposed to at this time. You're supposed to become, okay, I'm going to be a Yiddishist, and, and if I'm a diasporist, I'm going to work for Jewish culture, I guess, since he would be in Russia, in Russia, and try and work on that there, or I'm going to be a Zionist, I'm going to work with Hebrew, and I could be a cultural Zionist, and not necessarily want to form a state in Palestine, or you could be a political Zionist, which would be what we think of now as Zionism. And um, Ansky was kind of a little bit of all of them. Mm -hmm. And he was friends with a lot of people in a bunch of different parties, and he never really let go of his populist ideals. He didn't have an exclusive commitment to Russian peasantry anymore because he had now decided he was going to be Jewish again or own his Jewishness again. But he kind of transposed his populist ideas that folklore, the intellectuals had an obligation to the peasantry or to the people um, to work for them and to help better their conditions. Did he include himself in this community of Jewish peasantry or he kind of just wanted to focus on their folklore? He did because he was from that background. So he was from a very small town. He was born in a very small town and then moved when he was quite young to Vitebsk with his mother because his father was a sort of traveling salesman who left and did the usual sort of absent father mm -hmm. thing that you hear about a lot in literature. Um, and his mother was a tavern keeper, um, which is, again, a motif that you encounter a lot in Yiddish literature, especially, and also in Slavic language literature about Jews. Um, and he, he plays with that stereotype a lot in his fiction. Um, so he came from that background, and then he kind of advanced unconventionally through the ranks. He didn't mm -hmm. go to high school. He was very self-taught. He didn't have a university education, but he sort of apprenticed himself to all these public figures and public intellectuals. He learned Russian from 
his best friend who was very wealthy and had gone to a Russian language gymnasium. Mm -hmm. And so they would skip school together and smoke cigarettes and we teach him <laughs> Russian. Um, yeah, so so he was unconventional in that he came from this background, and a lot of the radicals who were trying to advance the cause of the working class were not actually from the working class. So he actually thought, well, you know, I'm I am the vanguard, I am the working class, and so you can't really criticize my politics because I am the people, mm -hmm. <laughs> even if I don't belong to any of your movements particularly. And then so in 1913, I believe, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, he started an ethnographic research project mm -hmm. in the Pale of Settlement. Yes. And it's considered a really important ethnographic research project because it was one of the largest and one of the first that was thoroughly done. Could yeah. you speak a little bit about his research there? Yeah. So um, he mounts this ethnographic research expedition with funding from Baron Ginsburg. Um, he takes his, I think, second cousin, who's a photographer, Solomon Yudovin, and another person, with, and they go with a phonograph and a camera, and they try to collect folklore, songs, um, take photographs. Um, Anski, I think, was the only one who spoke really fluent Yiddish, um, and so he was kind of the interpreter. Initially, people were mistrustful, but they gathered, I think, over a thousand pictures that are still being, I mean, the presentation I went to this morning on Slavic Jewish frontier ethnography used one of the photos from his expedition. Like they're still being used. They're um, very much still in the scholarship. Today. Yeah. And like he gathered so much information. Um, he wanted to start a museum, but then, you know, World War I happened and then the Russian Revolution happened and then he died. So, so much of it is he just. Was busy. He was busy. <laughs> um, so much of it is still in the archives and hasn't been translated or hasn't been used because there's just so much data um yeah so it was in the sort of border regions between the russian empire and what is now poland like mm -hmm. near near galicia um and he just went from sort of small town to small town and then um some of the th he also made this giant questionnaire um, that I think he pared it down. It initially had over a thousand questions on it. Oh, wow. And, um, For presumably one single person to work through. Yeah. Um, and so initially he'd start asking and then he realized he could just send it out and then people would send it back. Um, and he would also just leave things behind in each place he went to, um, his research. His research. And then people would or have someone there report back. And then someone, whoever his envoy was in that town, would then send information in. So it would just keep going if he didn't have time to stay for as long as he went. And um, also the czarist police were trailing him mm -hmm. constantly. I actually found out he was in um, my grandfather's hometown the month he was born. And I found that out from Zara's police records like two days ago. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Jewish geography happens. And what is the name of your grandfather's town? Uh, Zhitomir. Okay. In Ukraine. <laughs> um, February 1914. <laughs> and I think we should talk about what S. Ansky is perhaps also most famously known for, which is his play, The Dibuk. Yes. The Dibuk was premiered in 1920. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give us a brief intro to the plot? Yes. So it's a plot of star-crossed lovers, essentially, um, but also folklore and ghosts. Um, so these two men make their best friends. They meet in yeshiva and they make a promise that um, if they have two children um, that are a boy and a girl, that um, they will be betrothed to each other. And then one of them dies and the other one becomes a wealthy merchant and he forgets about his promise. So... The wealthy merchant's daughter, um, he betrothes her to the son of another rich guy because he wants her to marry rich. And um, meanwhile, the impoverished yet Talmudic prodigy son of his dead friend, who he claims not to know is the son of his dead friend and the children have never met, has been, you know, a guest in their house, um, mm -hmm. as was contemporary at the, or as was um, traditional at the time and so the children meet and they have this you know and do they know that they are the star-crossed lovers of their parents they don't but they do have they're inexplicably drawn to each other they immediately 
know that they're meant to be together and it must be so, but the father forbids it. And so Honan, who is, who is this boy, and Leia's the girl, um, begins to get into dabble in Kabbalah and realizes if he can't get his true love through, through holy means, perhaps through unholy means, he can use some kind of alchemy to conjure gold so that he will become richer than the guy that Leia's father wants to betroth her to. And in, in doing this conjuring, he, he dies. Um, and the last act of the play is essentially a very long staged rabbinic court where the dead father accuses the alive father of breaking their promise and the rabbis have to, I mean, oh, oh and Honan obviously comes back as a dibbuk to could, possess Leia. Do you mind explaining what a dibbuk is? Oh, yes. Um, a dibbuk is essentially um, a ghost. It's a sort of restless spirit. Um, Anski does not use a dibbuk the way Jewish folklore normally uses a dibbuk. Um, it's, it's usually someone who has sinned or transgressed on earth and mm-hmm. therefore can't pass on. Um, he's using it a little more the way you would think of a ghost in a haunted house um, that needs to do something, before, do something he can before he can move on. Usually avenging a murder. Um, he's framing it so that Honan was murdered by this failure to fulfill a promise. Um, and the last scene is very interesting to stage because it's a play. Mm-hmm. And two of the people in the court are, one, a woman who was possessed by her disembodied lover, so she has to speak with his voice, and that has to be conveyed. Oh, wow. And two, a ghost. So I read that sometimes the role of Leia is played by a man. Is that why? Sometimes, yeah. And sometimes what they'll do is they will just have an extra mic and then they'll have her mouth the words and then someone else speak with Mm -hmm. that mic and it's very complicated and I don't think they had that technology in 1920 so I'm really curious to to read more about how they did that or Mm -hmm. how they produced that effect but and so Onski died Mm -hmm. on the eve of his premiere essentially yeah to to make it dramatic Mm -hmm. um and he never actually got to see it premiered but when it premiered it was translated by himself mm-hmm. into Yiddish, and then it was also premiered in Hebrew, yeah. Russian. What were the premiere's receptions like? Basically, what was, how did it land in 1920? Yeah. So, I guess about the production history first. So, he initially wanted, he wrote it initially, I guess, in Russian and Yiddish simultaneously, is what people think. They don't really know. But he wanted to produce it in Russian mm-hmm. um, at the Moscow Art Theater under Stanislavski's direction. And a lot of the elements that people know about it now, like the messenger who kind of explains what's going on, were actually added by Stanislavski. Um, But it was supposed to premiere in 1917. And I think everyone at Aziz knows what happens in Russia in 1917. So it didn't premiere for obvious reasons. So then he starts pitching the Yiddish version. It's like, okay, he has to leave Russia also Mm -hmm. because um, he was a founding member of the uh, Socialist Revolutionary Party. Lenin was not very fond of them. He had so problems. where did he go? He goes to Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes to Warsaw. Some other places first, but ultimately he ends up in Warsaw. So in Warsaw, he starts pitching this Yiddish version of the play and doesn't get super far with it. But he also has um, Chaim Nachman Bialik translate it into Hebrew, which was also funny because Bialik didn't really like the play. Anski used to do these readings of it for his friends. Yeah. And um, he asked Bialik what he thought. And he's like, it's like you salvaged all this stuff from the scrap heap of folklore and just thrown it all together into one like piece of trash. And Anski's like, cool, will you translate it though? And Bialik's like, I guess. I'll I guess I'll translate this trash play. You? I mean, it's like we should all bring that kind of confidence and charisma into into the next year. Um, but so it gets published in, in Hebrew in Bialik's translation, and that's the translation that um, the uh, Habima Theater, which it was founded by Evgeny Vakhtango, who was also in Moscow mm-hmm. doing that sort of thing, and then he had to leave for similar reasons. Um, and it premieres in Hebrew. I know it premiered in Tel Aviv. Was this the version that premiered there? Yeah, and it was also, they were traveling around earlier than that. Like they, they, they were starting start out in Hebrew in Moscow and then they were doing a traveling thing around um, Eastern and I think a little Western Central Europe and then ended up in Tel Aviv. And then the um, Vilna Troupe in 1920 premiered. So it- In Lithuania. In, um, I think it premiered in Warsaw. Oh, but, so I think in Vilnius, Vilna. Oh yeah, I, was like, I think it was just the Vilna Troupe, but I think, okay. I'm pretty sure it premiered in Warsaw, but I could be wrong. 
totally okay. relying well, on your information. We um, are just having a lovely conversation. Yeah. Not fact checking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it only premiered after he died. Um, so he was trying super hard to get it published, get it premiered anywhere. It was not successful. He finally dies because he was had- it successful. Not successful because the content was. Not, did people not see it as interesting or it was provocative? Um, I think. I'm not sure. I think it was just partially people kept saying um, I had a really great line in one review that it was overburdened with ethnographic detail, impossible to stage and insufficiently Zionist <laughs> was the quote. Um, mm-hmm. And all of those things are true. Um, it is very hard to stage and it is very burdened with ethnographic detail. I mean, the entire third act is just a rabbinic court. Mm-hmm. And there is no action. It's just a rabbinic court for like 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> so if you're not into that, you're not into that. Um, and how did the life of the Dibbuk expand from 1920 to now? What is its place in kind of the canon of both Russian literature, Jewish literature, Yiddish literature, how does it stand? Yeah, so um, it it's pretty much known as the quintessential Yiddish play. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it exploded. I mean, they initially premiered it as a tribute to Ansky because he was very prolific. He was a very popular figure and they thought they would do, okay, we'll do this quick staging of this play as a tribute to him and then and they thought it might be of niche interest to a Jewish audience because it was in Yiddish. Mm-hmm. And then people just kept coming back and they kept doing encores. And then they did a Polish production and it was a Russian production. Um, and then it got translated into more European languages. And then people just kept coming back. And then what was surprising, I think, to a lot of people is that non-Jewish audiences kept coming back, but it would not have been surprising to Ansky, who always said that non-Jewish audiences understood his play better than Jewish audiences. Why do you think that is? Because he wrote it for them. Interesting. He, he also wrote it for um, assimilated or, I guess, acculturated is what we're supposed to say now, um, acculturated Russian-speaking Jews, mm-hmm. um, partially to sort of reintroduce them to what he thought were the salvageable or usable past elements of Jewish folk culture. So he really kind of built what he thought was a new Jewish culture on these folkloric elements. Exactly. Um, because he knew that what people had left behind was this kind of, what what he left behind was this sort of idea of, I guess, old-fashioned rabbinic Judaism, and he wanted to build a secular culture that would be both politically engaged, um, contemporary, um, but also not lose its sort of Jewish specificity. Um, and Do you think personally in the 21st century, the Dibbuk maybe has interesting things to say or new ways it could be staged, read, It does. About? I mean, Tony Kushner wrote a version of it. He, mm-hmm. he rewrote it in the 90s even. Um, I mean, people talk about queerness and Jewishness all the time. Some of that's stereotype, but some of that is true. I mean, the um, guy who made the film version of it in the 1930s was a Polish Jewish man who converted to Catholicism and eventually moved to Italy and pretended that he was royalty. Um, he was also extraordinarily gay and filmed the, the whole thing mm-hmm. in that gaze. Um, so it has definite appeal that way. People have done readings of it that way. Um, people are still writing about it. What do you think these queer elements that are really attractive are in the Dibbuk? Um, I mean, just even the, the, the gender element, how um, the, the, this man possesses this woman's body. Both He, he tries to, he fasts until he leaves his own body and then like can't stand to be in his own body and then possesses her and then when they say, get out, get out, get out, he just says, I will not leave. I will not leave. I will not leave. This is my body. I will not leave. Um, and the whole dynamic between them and the whole way that the fathers promise their kids to each other, because that's not a thing in Jewish religious culture at all. It's not a thing even in folk culture at all. 
Um, I think some people have talked about him borrowing it from ethnographic things about, uh, I think, ethnic Siberian culture that, that was happening at the time. But but he just makes a lot of this up. Like, oh, these two fathers loved each other very much. And so they promised that their children mm-hmm. would marry each other before they were born. They loved them very much. They loved them very much. And, and Naomi Seidman writes about that, too, that um, this in-law relationship, all the other kinship relationships in Yiddish are like Germanic root based, but the in-law relationship is the only one that is Hebrew based. Mm -hmm. um, And it's a different kind of intimacy. And she discusses the relationship between the fathers being sort of projected onto the children because it can't be fulfilled because they're both men. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of- And Leah kind of refuses to marry or engage with traditional feminine culture. Exactly. Um, And all of Ansky's women are like that because Mm -hmm. Not to over-psychologize, but he was raised by the single mother, and he does all of his women. Maybe almost. he's not a feminist. Maybe proto-feminist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. And he does write all of these women characters as sort of refusing to engage in tradition. And a lot of Dybbuk possession um, was an avenue available, was a sort of symbolic language available to women to refuse to engage in tradition. Like there are To a bunch say they were possessed by a Dybbuk. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this whole story of the Maiden of Ludmere, um, who, uh, and Isaac Bisheva Singer writes about this in Satan and Gorai, um, where his character, based on the Maiden of Ludmere, where um, this character, Rahala, um, says that she is possessed by the Dybbuk of a very famous Tzaddik or holy man, um, and therefore she can make these decrees and mm-hmm. gain a following and doesn't have to marry someone. And even though she's disabled, I think she has a club foot, so she would have been very marginalized. The character or the Maiden of Ludmere? The, the character. Okay. Um, For the listeners, could you explain who the Maiden of Lunar was? She was oh, yeah, a she, Rebbe? She, yeah, she wasn't a, a Rebbe, but she um, was a figure, I want to say 1600s, 17th century, I want to say, um, who used spirit possession to as a means of... justifying or explaining or gaining access to this kind of spiritual authority that she would not have otherwise had as a woman and people listened to her mm-hmm. on that behalf because they were like oh well okay she's a woman but look there's a, there's a man soul in there um, and that's also just a very if you're talking about ways people talk about trans so I'm not saying the maiden of Ludmere was trans but I'm saying like they're just the ways that kind of the discourse around this, it is very similar the discourse similar. around it is very similar um, and I think that's one of the reasons people immediately, I mean, there was an article on tablet called Queer Yiddishkeit, and the picture they used was a screenshot from the Dybbuk film. Oh, wow. I guess I want to wrap up by maybe asking where you would like to take this figure of Anski in your research, if at all. Yeah. Um, what I'm talking about now, I mean, everyone has written about the Dybbuk, um, He's like super, super associated with it. And while I love the Dybbuk, um, I'm going to write, I would like to write a little bit more about his other work. And what I'm working on now is um, he wrote some labor songs for the Bund and he wrote some poems right around 1901 when he first decides that he's going to be Jewish again. And they haven't really received any attention. People assume they were just kind of, oh, they're very didactic you know, labor songs, that's not really literature. Um, And they're extremely literary. They're extremely fascinating. Um, They play with language and they code switch in extremely interesting ways. So I'm I'm working with that a little bit right now to just show that he was doing, even in his work that is not necessarily read as literary because he was also, you know, a journalist and... Mm -hmm. Uh, nonfiction writer, but even in his work that was not necessarily literary, and especially his poetry, which almost no one looked at, um, it's also really interesting. He's doing similar things. And is his poetry extent? His previous works in Russian, Yiddish, has it been translated into English? Um, his a couple of his songs have. Um, Daniel Kahn translated one of his Bund songs because he covered it, and I think the main, the other main Bun song has been translated just because it's famous as a labor song, but his poems haven't been translated to the extent of my knowledge. Would and you like to translate them? I would love to translate them. <laughs> yeah. 
and um, a lot of his earlier stories that he kind of, after 1901, um, in his they gave a speech in his honor. And he's like, oh, yes. And um, everything I wrote before then, I disavowed that. Pretend that wasn't me. And that just made me want to write about it. Well, I look forward to reading that. Thank you so much for being with us, Raya. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jinan Ferguson, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Nevada in Reno. Dr. Ferguson, could you give a little intro to your biography and your main research interests? Sounds great. Um, so yeah, um, I'm Dr. Janan Ferguson, and I've been doing research in the Sahara Republic for about the last decade. I first started out during my master's in Canada, uh, where I'm originally from, looking at indigenous languages in the Canadian North, the Inuktitut language as spoken in, in parts of northern Quebec and Nunavut, but also research with Athapaskan languages in the Yukon Territory, closer to the Alaskan border. I got really interested in in doing work in uh, Siberia, primarily due to my interest in the the former Soviet Union. My mother's family, uh, side of the family, originates in Ukraine and had left during the the Soviet era. Um, And I was very familiar with a lot of the issues that um, the maintenance of language sort of faced both in Ukraine during the Soviet period and also in the diaspora. And my interest in the North led me to, to trying to explore more what was happening in Siberia, particularly the Sahara Republic, since I had heard that there, perhaps more so than in other regions, the language had persisted during that, that era. So that was what led me to, to the Saha language, um, my, my interest in the North, my interest in the Soviet sphere, and, and wanting to understand better um, what was going on with the language, especially with the rapidly urbanizing Arctic. Mm-hmm. And so the Saha language is a Turkic language? Yeah. Of about how many speakers? So it's a, yeah, it's a North Siberian Turkic language. It, it uh, really differs from a lot of the other Turkic languages since it, it branched off from the original family before some of the others did in, in the, the Cyan Altai region. But um, it has potentially as many as, as 450,000 speakers. However, I think we have to be careful with, with census data, um, especially since many people are, are used to the old, the old census question that asked about your, your native language. And, and many people, regardless of how well they speak or how often they speak their native language, would still identify with that language, even if they do not speak it. So a lot of people I know have talked about saying that, you know, 450,000 is a little bit high mm-hmm. um, for a speaker total. So I would maybe conservatively say around 400,000. It is a language that still sees a lot of vitality um, in that it is, you know, still different than than many of the other languages in in that region of Siberia, that it is actively being learned by children um, in in most cases. So um, it it is a language that people do feel some anxiety about its future. simply because, you know, as, as many people who study language policy, language planning, and, and language um, endangerment on a, dem- a larger demographic scale, you know, they get uneasy whenever there's, you know, less than a thousand speakers of a language, or less than a million speakers of a language, sorry. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that, that there is this sort of increasing vitality of the language, um, even in urban spaces these days, um, there is still concern about, about its loss and, and the future of, of the language in, you know, 50 or 100 years down the road. Yeah. And in one of your works, you noted that in the 1990s, right around the fall of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. it the Saha language was actually, there was anxiety surrounding it. Mm-hmm. It was considered uh, in a pre-crisis state, yep. potentially endangered, but mm-hmm. now it's really becoming revitalized. And you talk mm-hmm. about that in your mm-hmm. 2018 book entitled Words Like Birds, Saha Discourses and Practices in the City, mm-hmm. which is a linguistic ethnography focused on the practice and mm-hmm. discourse around Saha language mm-hmm. in Yakutsk specifically, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could kind of address the dual existence of mm-hmm. Saha as a revitalizing language with Russian, which mm-hmm. is currently the also official language yeah. of Saha. So um, something that we started to see, especially in the, the late 90s, um, early 2000s, with the um, economic downturn at that time, the, the ruble crisis, was that um, for many people living in um, the, the rural areas became slightly less feasible, and we saw much more of a movement towards the cities. Mm-hmm. And, and because the, the Saha language had been strong in the villages during the, the Soviet period, it was seen as the stronghold, um, whereas, of course, the, the city had become very quickly 
and definitively Russianized, um, with this large population moving towards um, Yakutsk and settling in Yakutsk, um, as well as the the policies of the late, you know, late to Soviet, uh, late Soviet, early post-Soviet period that did focus on language promotion to get the language into the school system to not only revitalize the language, but revalorize it to take a lot of the, the negative associations with has a, a backward language, a language mm -hmm. that was sort of the antithesis of, of progress and, and the wider scope of what the Soviets imagined the world to be and the, all of that. Um, there was this you know, sort of revalorization of Saha is a, a really a rich language, a, a language with a, a very strong oral tradition. So there was this process of revalorization um, that was coupled with this demographic shift with many, many more people coming to the city um, that was sort of the, the right ingredients. They were, it was sort of the right ingredients for the, the that like linguistic revitalization um, in that early um early 2000s in particular. So over the last 20 years or so, um, there has been this, um, you know, sachification of, of mm -hmm. Yakutsk again. And we see that reflected in, in numerous spheres. Um, the more and more people are speaking the language just in public spaces on an everyday basis. Um, I've written a little bit with my colleague Liana Sidorova at the mm -hmm. Northeastern Federal University in Yakutsk about the linguistic landscape and the visual presence. Um, and we're sort of looking at expanding that into not only looking at the presence of language, but also the sort of visual and semiotic presence of, of Sahanis in the city. Mm -hmm. So that's been another domain in which we've really seen it expand. And then within um, media, especially popular media, so looking at music, looking at the film industry, mm -hmm. um, has been another area where um, it's it's really sort of been been flourishing and, and blossoming, um, which is a good sign. The more domains you have a language in, um, the more um, hopefulness, I guess, people feel around its its survival for, mm -hmm. for the future. And now if Russian is more of a language for the public sphere, traditionally, yeah, especially absolutely. in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. and if Saha was a language more taught in families at home yeah. as a private sphere mm -hmm. how has how has technology affected basically those mm -hmm. two spheres and their yeah. interactions do you find that maybe speaking or writing saha through social media the mm -hmm. internet has bridged those spheres or kind of I dissolved so. them um i would i would say that the the, the use of social media is really, really important. Um, even though Russian still still dominates, it, mm -hmm. it will dominate. It's not only, a, you know, the co-official language of the Sahara Republic, but it's needed for, you know, success in higher education. It's needed um, for the, the you know, expansion of opportunities to, to other parts of Russia. And, and many students there, um, you know, go to other parts of Russia or even now abroad. We're seeing more and more students, you know, of the who are now in their, you know, late teens, early 20s, also, you know, studying places like Korea, Japan, China. China, where not only are they, you know, learning English for for studying abroad, but also mm -hmm. the languages of those countries. But I think one of the the things that there is a lot of potential um, in regard to to social media is allowing people to stay in touch better with with people who might still be um, living in the villages. And mm -hmm. early on, I know a lot of people said that you know it, even though they were you know they newly moved to Yakutsk and they were sort of in a Russian dominant sphere, um, you know having cell phones, having those connections to people back in the villages encouraged them to you know speak Saha to their grandma on a regular basis and things like that. But it also made them feel, I think, less. Um, less hesitant to speak Saha in the city, um, both in virtual spaces and in physical spaces. Mm -hmm. um, there was um, much less stigma attached to it, but also it was seen that, you know, Saha is a useful language. We can use it online. Why aren't we doing it? Mm -hmm. And so um, the the increase there was was definitely definitely seen. So again, Russian still dominates and and but there is more, it's like Saha has just sort of moved in and, and take it's taking up a little bit more space. Um, and that there is a lot of um, social value being attributed to to speaking Saha in the city. Um, and a lot of this has to do, like I said, with the entertainment industry, mm -hmm. both in terms the of Saha language music, entertainment. Yeah, Saha language entertainment, the, the Saha language films, there have been tons of them in the past few years that have gone on to acclaim not only in the Saha Republic, but Russia, international film festivals. Um, and so there is this, again, this sense of revalorization for Saha. So even if it is not necessarily, you know, pushing out Russian in any means, like there, you can't really compare the two because they're on such different levels in terms of number of speakers, but also their kind of power there. Mm -hmm. um, there is more, Saha takes up more space than it did in the past, both in a, in a symbolic, but also a very practical way. 
And from a linguistic standpoint, mm -hmm. has there been kind of a de-Russification of maybe Russian influences on the Saha language? Some people absolutely push for that. Um, there, it's interesting because obviously over you know 400 years of contact and especially over the last century, there's been um, a great intensification of, of copying words from, mm -hmm. from, from Russian. And I, I use the you know Turkic linguist Lars Johansson's framework of copying words because borrowing makes a little bit less sense. But also when we copy something, we can change it a little bit. And so um, traditionally, um, especially over the last 50 years, um, you know, 60 years in the height of the Soviet period, um, a lot of the words that were that were copied from Russian um, would come in either intact with their Russian phonology there, present still, or people would sort of um, sahify them by, you know, shifting the rules that relate to vowel harmony and things like that. Um, but I've seen increasingly um, both teachers of the Saha language as well as um, academics have been trying to push for Saha equivalents for these copied words, um, for words like you know, library, which, um, you know, biblioteca in Russian, biblioteke, if you look at the Saha copy, well, why aren't we calling that like the agarbalagan, the reading space or the reading hut, mm -hmm. um, the place of books or words for um, airplane is is another good one. Samulyot in Russian, of course, tumulut in Saha. Um, people have suggested everything from kutur al, so flying boat, timer al, iron, iron boat, to, again, to show that we have all of these pieces of saha to build something to, to sort of indigenize word creation. Mm -hmm. um, but that certainly is not something that's caught on across the board. Um, you will have many people tell you, you know, that is what we should say, um, but then later you'll be talking to them and, and they will use those those copied varieties. However, there there is an, there is sort of a a push toward that, and I know that you know it's certainly an idea tossed around by journalists and and teachers to mm -hmm. to focus on the um, indigenous neologisms as opposed to the, the the copies from from Russian. And so I'm really interested uh, in your work when you talk about what it means, especially for young people mm -hmm. in Saha to speak pure Saha. Yes, I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that and mm -hmm. kind of the connotations that has. Absolutely. So. Um, Many times for people who grew up in Yakutsk mm -hmm. of all generations, even if they do speak Saha, um, they tend to um, more readily use a lot of these, these copied varieties. However, with the promotion of the language more broadly over the past 20 years or so, um, as well as the sort of pressure, I think, from the other areas in which culture is being revitalized, for instance, in the spiritual domains, um, there is a little bit more pressure to sound, um, you know, that you're speaking purely, erastic sahali, so purely in saha, um, as a sign of your your commitment and your authenticity, mm -hmm. um, but also respect for the language. Um, it's really tied to discourses about respect, which also, um, as I'll maybe talk about a bit later, have these spiritual connotations. So it's interesting because many, um, many younger Saha in particular, as well as, you know, middle-aged folks in, in Yakutsk do have a, an awareness and an understanding of what it means to speak that way. Um, but they don't always necessarily do it on a regular basis. However, many of them, when pressed, will code switch um, or code mix um, mm -hmm. and, and make the transition to using the more Saha um, variants. So really, I think looking at language, like I mentioned in my book, along a spectrum to being more Russian and, and more Saha, and that there can be space in the middle where you can, um, again, mix these languages more creatively, more syncretically. Um, however, switching to um, a, a more pure, according to their estimations, you know, uh, register can can signify these um, various amounts of respect, not only for the language, um, for your interlocutor, for instance, if those people are seen as, you know, real Saha, Jingnach Saha from the villages, but also to, to your elders or people in positions of, of greater social power. Mm -hmm. um, however, we are also seeing that where that was, I think, even really more heavily stigmatized a decade ago, a uh, decade and a half ago. Speaking pure Saha stigmatized. Oh, not No, speaking the mixed variety okay. um, was more stigmatized um, because, again, there's this notion of the village as being the, you know, the heartland, the, mm -hmm. the, the real variety of the language. Um, nowadays, you're seeing more people 
you know, perhaps pushing back against that and saying, well, this is this is how I grew up. I grew up in Yakutsk. I use both Sakha and Russian so freely in my everyday lives. Different people, I will use different amounts of each language based on their preferences, their knowledge. Um, so they are, you know, claiming that a little bit for, for themselves um, in a way that that was even different, you know, for instance, back in 2009 when I first started my research. Mm -hmm. And in your fieldwork, did you ever find any, especially with young people, I'm thinking, mm -hmm. any anxiety when maybe they don't have a yeah. full fluent capacity of Saha? Mm -hmm. I remember um, a, a younger friend of mine, Tupi, you know, in his early 30s now, so mm -hmm. it was in his, you know, late, uh, early 20s then. Um, he was taking me to um, to meet someone at the Archidiete, which is the known as the House of Purification, and it's where you can meet a lot of Algustchits or blessing makers, um, a lot of spiritual practitioners, and he was taking to show me the area, and he said that, you know, we had been speaking a little bit in Russian on the way there, a little bit in Saha, but as soon as an older man came to the door, who was sort of the keeper of the building, um, he immediately switched, but he was having some trouble, and I could really feel his anxiety, and when we left later, he's like, did you see me in there? Did you hear me speaking pure Saha? I was so worried that I was going to disappoint him. I was so worried mm -hmm. that I was not going to be able to um, satisfy what he would assume from me, you know, um, a young Saha person um, who was, you know, competent in, in using those forms. So a lot of times um, people's switches may be very uh, overt, but it may be something that they do feel a lot of stress and anxiety over being judged for, for not speaking it freely enough. Um, it's mostly in groups of their peers, um, especially among you know, not only age group peers, but mm -hmm. others who also grew up in Yakutsk who understand more. Um, but you will even see some attempts to to shift one's register, or at least people being more inspired to shift towards it, perhaps a more what they might see as a pure, authentic version, even if they, for instance, are in university and they have a whole cohort of, of friends who came mm -hmm. from the village, they may also, I've heard of students saying, yeah, my Saha got so much better um, because it turned out all of my friends were you know, grew up rurally. So mm -hmm. um, that also helped shift the way I spoke the language because I, I need, I felt the need to fit in with them. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd really now like to talk about your, the way you talk about the phenomenon of kind of the animacy of language. Yeah. yeah. Of specifically Saha mm -hmm. in the book, um, Words Like Birds. Yeah. Can you talk about what kind of significance Saha has in sure. being more than maybe just a written language? Yeah. So one of the things that I went into the field really interested in when I was working on my dissertation work a decade ago was this idea of language ideology. Mm -hmm. So for linguistic anthropologists, that's usually conceptualized as a, um, you know, belief, attitude, conceptualization of, of what language is and what language does. And often it's referred to as a language ideology to sort of refer to the fact that this is a belief about language. But what I soon realized um, in the work that I did back then even was that, you know, even the idea of what a language is, what its boundaries are, is, um, you know, it's a very Western European conception mm -hmm. that derives from, you know, Western European philosophers of language. And, and I think we have the tendency, especially in, you know, neoliberal capitalist societies in the West to think of language as very much of a tool. It's something you can acquire. It's something you can pick up and put down. It's something that you use, right? Mm -hmm. um, but language was seen as, as something that wasn't necessarily... Um, you know, objectified. It wasn't necessarily something that had the same kind of utility. Um, rather than being objectified, it was personified. And many people at first would repeat these these proverbs to me, like, Til ichilach. so language has a spirit or language is animate, um, you know, and, and those got me thinking and wanting to dig deeper about how people actually thought of language as a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that a lot of, again, beliefs and ideas about language were not just about language, but they were connected to other understandings of person Hood, um, existence, agency, um, broader conceptions of what reality is in, in Saha culture. And, you know, despite Russian influence and, of course, um, influence from Russian ideologies of language, mm -hmm. um, there was still this, this core understanding of, of language. And with the revitalization of a lot of Saha spiritual practices, people were becoming more and more familiar with how language fit into the broader understanding of the world. Um, and for um, that, it meant that language is something that is often conceived of as a form of sustenance. Um, it, it sustains you on sort of an aesthetic or affective level. Um, it's also something that you need to respect, um, and respecting it could mean, you know, perhaps 
you know, putting in the effort to make sure that you speak Saha even with all of the pressures of, of Russian around you. It can also be to speak Saha in a certain way, of course. Mm-hmm. So in that way, maybe a more Saha way or a, a real or authentic or pure Saha way. Um, and that many people would explicitly talk about this idea of the spirit of language as, as something that, you know, you need to be in good relation with um, and that that makes you um, uh, allow or allows you to claim perhaps a, a, a greater sense of Saha belonging. It's also the language you would want to use when when interacting um, within Saha belief systems with the land, with, with your ancestors, with your elders. Um, so there was this really, um, inter- that, that whole sort of, I don't know, um, complex of beliefs made me want to say, well, maybe we need to sort of expand the concept of what a language ideology is um, to look at it as, you know, something that's more ontological, something more about the ways that that humans and, and you know, other beings too fit mm-hmm. into the nature of reality and, and interact with each other. Um, and this is actually a, I've been recently speaking with some other linguistic anthropologists working in South America, um, Jan Hawk, who works with the Aceh speakers in, in Paraguay and um We've been talking a lot about this because they, um, a lot of people there notice that, you know, language is not an objectified thing. It's, it's a force. It's something that you can harness. That's something that moves through you, right? Um, but not necessarily something that can be easily quantified. So he talks a lot about linguistic natures. So what the nature of language is in different cultures also varies. So mm-hmm. we need to be careful when we, we think of it from, you know, a, a strictly sort of political economical approach or to language ideology. And on the topic of kind of literary Saha and the language, you're actually here at ACES to present a paper about the increased prominence or focus on Algi's poems. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe tell our listeners what Algi's are and what their kind of role is today as an oral literary form in Saha. Sure. So... I was first uh, introduced to Algus in their more traditional ritual context, um, attending, for instance, the summer solstice festivals, the Ahuch. Um, you know, you would see people saying these these types of blessing poems, right? Mm-hmm. They're a bit of a blessing and a bit of a prayer. It's it's kind of a word that's difficult to translate directly into English because it, um, you know, it draws on both both forms, and. Early on in my my fieldwork, you know, even a a decade ago, I I really saw them mostly restricted to those kinds of ritual contexts. So you could go and have an algus at the Architiete, the House of Purification, or you could, um, you know, witness them at at Adesuch to to bless the land upon which the festival would be held, um, to greet the sun when when everybody waits for the, you know, the almost midnight sun to rise at three in the morning. So they were very situational. Yeah, very situational and very very much associated with people what people would consider traditional mm-hmm. um, traditional Saha practices um, but then I also started seeing them you know when new buildings would open up in the city uh, somebody would be there to offer an algus you know for the building of a school or the building of a hospital the the breaking of ground um, which again has its precedent in in Saha village culture the building of a new house um, I saw I started to see recorded algus on on YouTube for instance um, a couple of years ago there were a number of Saha athletes heading to the the summer games in in Rio and so people had recorded their alguses for the success of their you know favorite boxers and wrestlers um, and then I started really seeing it as again increasing connections to cell phones people were using them on WhatsApp mm-hmm. um, you know contact you as on just sending Instagram, them out as texts sending them out as texts and um, they would you know some some there's one group that for instance every day somebody will send out an algus and if they became um sort of in some ways sort of decontextualized from from ritual but incorporated into people's everyday lives in a way that seemed partly pedagogical people wanted to learn how to write algus or how to mm-hmm. compose algus um presumably then going on to be able to say them in in other instances in their daily lives um but there was also sort of the act of reading them and the act of sharing them that became really interesting to me um so some Something that really um, is becoming a new focus in my research is the affective consequences of the sharing of, of verbal art. So again, some of the people who share algos may really feel an affiliation with the revitalization of Saha Itagalech, so the, the belief systems, traditional Saha beliefs. Mm-hmm. The, um, but some people don't necessarily. Um, but the the algos takes on a, a much more personal um, note in, in one sort of 
personal spiritual development. Um, it's part aesthetic. Again, this appreciation of the power of language, language as sustenance, language as something that can produce emotional change, um, but also as a new way of relating to the self in the world. So my, my current research is really looking at the ways that these circulate. Um, again, online domains are, are really fascinating. You'll see people on forums say, can you write me some August words, please? I really want to say something for you know somebody's wedding or somebody's mm -hmm. birth. Um, but you'll also see people sharing older ones, right? People even digging back through older ethnographies from you know the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, looking for these original texts. Um, other people will perhaps transcribe an August that was said at the solstice um, celebrations um, and share that around. Um, there are courses you can take um, for instance, little little seminars and workshops by professional August chits who talk about not only sort of the theory of what August means, but but also the practice. How do you properly do it? How do you properly write it? Um, so there also becomes an issue of sort of expertise and authenticity as well. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, some people will will compose them and share them um, in a way that again is is detached from the sort of material aspects of ritual, um, but is a way of um, sharing things much the way that, that people might share memes. Um, and, and that, I think, has really led to this resurgence of interest because they do circulate, not just on paper, um, but, but through that, that instantaneous sharing of the, the digital world. And is there a specific form or linguistic characteristics of an algas where if you read it, you would know? Absolutely. Um, and there are a couple of, um, you know, Saha linguists and philologists who mm -hmm. have analyzed this in more depth than I have. Um, but one of the things that I, I really notice about them is despite their contemporary, you know, they are very contemporary, people still rely on a lot of the older stylistic forms. Um, you will hear, for instance, a lot of the use of the um, future conditional tenses. Um, so it's very much about expressing wishes, expressing um, what you want to see in the world, what you want to create in the world. So it's it's very much about constructing a vision of the world. And mm -hmm. so you, you see certain linguistic tenses, you see certain phrases um, that are actually not just associated with Algus, but traditional Sahal or oral literature more broadly. So a lot of descriptions of the land, um, descriptions of directionality, and the speaker's positioning in the world are often phrases you find in the epic poetry as well, the Olong Ho. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely these this strong roots, both structurally and linguistically, in tradition, um, but people can really, again, compose all this for anyone or anything. And my question with kind of really almost not normalizing, but kind of reviving in even more contexts, mm -hmm. these traditional oral forms, do you find that there are specific concepts or vocabularies in these oral forms that maybe aren't as present in daily Saha language yeah. that are being proliferated? Absolutely. Um, a lot of these phrasings um, are that, that again, come from the, the oral tradition more broadly. A lot of people don't often complain when they hear epic poetry, the Olam Ho, there's been a lot of, um, you know, push to, to use that almost as sort of a, a metonymic symbol for Saha culture. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say, well, you know, it sounds really pretty and all, but I don't, I'm not familiar with these forms. But Algus is a way to become more familiar without, you know, committing to learning and reading, you know, hundreds of lines of, of mm -hmm. epic poetry. It is a form that is more portable um, and the utility of the form because it so much is about the self expressing wishes for yourself, wishes for others. I think it becomes a very um, portable way to um, transmit the language, but yeah, transmit vocabulary, um, especially really poetic and specific vocabulary mm -hmm. that a lot of people simply don't use in, in daily conversation, um, but that may be highly valued because of the increased value and valorization of the language as a whole so I do see them also playing an important role in the more the broader sort of maintenance of the language because um, again if, if language is only used in a few domains right privately or conversationally mm -hmm. in the home um, you know the more domains you can use it in the more likely it is you're going to see continued maintenance and creativity too as a, as a driver you know a lot of people sometimes I think become a bit afraid of creativity because there is of course this worry about authenticity and sticking to these specific forms but the creativity in a language is a sign of uh, vitality in mm -hmm. the language and its speakers um, and I see that you know again these are a very vital way of, of shifting you know toward 
you know, the generation of new things, whether it's music or whether it's film or whether it's August, um, it's, it's all new, it's innovative, it relies on tradition, but it also repackages and, and recontextualizes tradition in a way that's, that's really hopeful. And so my personal interests are translation, and I'm wondering, essentially, how the state of Saha literature in translation and how how frequent that has happened or if there are new Saha things being translated into other languages like Russian or even English. And I know you quite beautifully translate um, Saha phrases in your scholarship. You. I think your translations are beautiful, just the phrases. I was wondering- I really like poetry. I write poetry and I like it a lot. I can so tell thank you so from much. when I read your That's translations. So and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about potentially uh, what it's like to translate from Saha or are there difficulties or benefits when you switch languages and how it changes? Um, I find it really difficult to translate in general, mm -hmm. but, um, and a lot of that is the structure of the language being so different, for instance, from both Russian and English that, mm -hmm. um, you know, it forces you as a translator to make a lot of uh, creative decisions, I think, in, in how to capture not only the, the form, but also the, the sort of the spirit and the fluidity of the writing. But surprisingly, I think that translating Saha poetry and so whether that's Algus or, or other forms of even more perhaps secular non-ritual poetry um, is easier because you can play a lot of more with form and mm -hmm. structure. Um, but what is difficult, I think, is some of the concepts and um, we simply don't have equivalents for them in English. Do you have an example? Um, well, even even talking about, for instance, the the conception of of the soul, um, mm -hmm. you know, some people will use duha, which comes from Russian, of course, dusha. Um, but the saha concept of kutsur, people have three kut, three different souls. But sur um, comes along with kut because kut is more just the spirit, but sur has an element of uh, the the emotion, um, uh, the emotion and the mentality and the mental function too and of consciousness and awareness mm -hmm. so we don't you know in necessarily have an equivalent for that um but even in in terms of of some of the you know whether it's names of plants or names of birds or, or things like that can be difficult to find equivalents for um and and even just some of the you know the symbolism for instance of food um symbolism of those foods not only people in English maybe not knowing what the food is but mm -hmm. also how symbolically powerful whereas you know colors yeah um, there are two different words for instance for white um, in the Saha language and there's one that is more associated with the sun um, with um, deities with heaven um, which is used in, in slightly different ways mm -hmm. than the word white in a they just carry these different text. cultural connotations yeah, the, the cultural connotations are different and i think whenever you have two cultures where you know there hasn't been a lot of cultural contact it's even a little easier into russian i think because of the long history of cultural contact mm -hmm. you know there are a few um you know saha words that even russians will know um especially in that region even if they don't speak the language um but when you're translating it to a language that or a language and culture that's very different um it can be it, it's a much much bigger um undertaking I think to, to really capture the spirit of that but I think it's important I think you know making sure that you pay attention to translation especially as a linguistic anthropologist is is really key um, because you want to make sure that you're carrying along those concepts and you're not sort of bleaching them semantically to the point where um, you know people don't understand anymore what mm -hmm. the original might have been like so yeah, making sure that they carry those things with them. We, um, it reminds me a lot of this idea of, of, of words being like birds. And I know this is something that um, uh, Dr. Susan Crate has talked a lot about in her research on uh, the ohohai, the round dances and the improvised songs is that, you know, words move, words, words are definitely fluid and changing um, mm -hmm. and they're, they're never quite fixed. So, you know, when you're, when you're doing that in translation, you wanna make sure that, that you know, it isn't too static, right? Mm -hmm. You want to to capture the sense of of changeability and interpretation and movement that, that is culturally connected. Yeah, and I just want to maybe point out a couple translations you did of phrases, mm -hmm. just talking about words that illustrate kind of their dynamic mm -hmm. dynamicism in Saha. You kind of talk about phrases of words like birds, but yeah. also words weighty as a hammer, yeah. and then words as precise as an arrow or a weapon, yeah. mm -hmm. kind of with all this movement and yeah. very 
different contexts in which they yeah. can mean different things. And, and those, again, were some of the phrases that really set off my interest in, in trying to better understand, you know, what language is. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Saha speakers have a very, language is very central, not only, again, to you know, cultural identity, but also to their the appreciation of being in the world and being able to describe things precisely. There's a really high level, I think, um, of metalinguistic awareness. There's a lot of appreciation of language, and um, yeah, word, words do things in the world. I mean, you know, this for for linguistic anthropologist was you know never something I had to explain to people. They're like, of course they do. You know, I didn't have to break out. You know, talking about you know Austin and Searle and philosophers of language to try and explain what I was interested in, because there was already this sense that yeah, words words mean a lot. They they're weighty, they're precise, or good words are weighty mm -hmm. and precise, and that we want to strive for that when when we speak. And I think this this focus on language and and appreciation of language is really important again for the continued vitality of the language. Um, you know, in in processes of cultural revitalization worldwide for for some cultures you know language is the sort of centerpiece in other cultures it may be other practices but mm -hmm. um no matter what it is in, in saha there's this great appreciation for the aesthetics of language um as well as sort of the rhetorical force of language and so that i think is one of the reasons that the revitalization in the city has been so successful is because um you know culturally there always has been a the, the appreciation of the word. And, and that's something that I find really compelling. And outside of the city mm -hmm. is the same kind of coexistence of Saha and Russian occurring in a similar manner, or is the situation a little different? Um, well, again, traditionally in the in the villages, we have seen a much, much more predominant use of Saha. Mm -hmm. So, of course, within the education system, everybody is learning Russian, um, especially of, you know, the, the current generations, though, um, you know, even generationally, there may be a difference um, with the, the younger, the, the youngest generations mm -hmm. right now as compared to the, 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 slightly, the slightly older ones. Um, Many people, of course, move back and forth between the, the city and the village at different points in their lives. Um, the need to get a higher education, for instance, basically mm -hmm. happens in, in Yakutsk or perhaps other cities such as, you know, Vilvisk or, or Mirni or Aldan if you're in the south, Noryungri. But um, so you're, everybody is exposed to the city and the different dynamics and linguistic ecologies that are present there. But many people also do move back to the, to the village or to multiple villages at different points in their lives. And so, um, again, we will, we have yet to see what exactly will happen with the increasing connectivity, for instance, mm -hmm. not only within the Sahara Republic, but to, to Russia and to other parts of the world, um, and what that's going to mean for the very youngest generations. But at least for the generations that I worked with, um, connection to the village does often mean increased language maintenance. Um, and the the movement from village to city also means bringing the language with you, um, as opposed to the Soviet era. You know, the the sort of strictures or the feelings of, of linguistic repression have dissipated, and that you know many of the young actors in the films or you know young musicians, you know hip hop musicians, they come from the village, they speak Saha, and they will continue doing that in the city. Um, they will continue to sort of develop the. Um, the oral literary, literary tradition, not only through things like Algis, but also through popular music, for instance, mm -hmm. through film scripts, uh, which which also attempt to capture the the dynamism of the, the Saha language. I guess as my kind of wrapping up, I wonder where you'd like to take this Algis project, or if there's other things you're working on, on Saha, outside of Saha. Um, I'm going. I'm definitely continuing the August research, and hopefully um, next year during a sabbatical, I'll have a chance to um, spend a good, uh, you know, semester in the summer there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm really following up on this August research from afar since I can, since so much of it is online. Um, but definitely going back to witness more. Um, performances and productions of it, but also to meet up with more people and, and continue sort of deepening interviews with both practitioners as well as people who listen to them, um, as well as talking in person um, to people who uh, 
to, who write them. This is sort of transitioning to a, a, a project on, on poetry and, and music forms more broadly in Saha mm -hmm. and, and how those play into language revitalization. But again, looking at sort of um, things from a more personal standpoint among individuals, you know, what does that do for them affectively, you know, collectively and personally, mm -hmm. um, creating transformation, but also this as a way to deal with uncertainty. Um, in the world, how do these sort of personal, you know, as a declarative statement? Yeah, a declarative statement. Um, you see some of the workshops on Algus, for instance, bringing in a lot of language that we might associate with self-help. You know, how to develop the self, how to state your intentions, how to, you know, dispel anxiety, to be mindful. And so I'm interested in the overlap um, between Algus and some of these other things we might consider um, in line with Foucault's technology of the self, like mindfulness practice and its expansion in the world um, in many countries, um, meditation, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, how does Algus fit into this broader set of practices that people might engage in? Um, but yeah, continuing the work on on poetry more broadly, written and spoken, um, and, and music as well. So. Um, uh, there's a there's a really sort of vibrant young music scene um, in the city that I'm um, hoping to delve more into as well. That sounds fantastic. I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Mahtal. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.